This is an ABC podcast. Hi, I'm Kylie Morris, sitting in for Tom Switzer one last time. After an extended break, Tom will be back in the Between the Lines chair next week. But on the show this week, what is the likelihood of Russian military personnel being held accountable for their actions in Ukraine? Nobel Peace Prize winner Maria Ressa discusses the latest moves to restrict press freedom in the Philippines and shut down her online news site Rappler. But we begin in the US with the January 6th hearings. Is there now enough evidence to indict President Donald Trump? Politics rarely attracts a television audience that rivals primetime football. But the January 6th congressional hearings in the United States investigating the 2021 attack on the US Capitol building have managed just that. The hearings have wrapped up for now, but not before revealing an apparently scheming, malevolent president willing to imperil lives, including that of his vice president, to cling to power. There was ketchup on the wall, an arm wrestle over an armoured car steering wheel, and the casual failure to say anything to quell the violent mob marching on the Capitol. So no shortage of drama. But was there evidence, specifically enough evidence to charge the former president and for what? Well, Lawrence Tribe is Professor Emeritus at Harvard Law School. Thanks for joining us, Laurie. Thank you, Kylie. Was there for you a moment when you kind of leaned toward the television as you were watching the hearings and thought, that's it? there's the nail in the coffin. There's no getting away from this. Well, this was a coffin whose lid was pretty well nailed from the beginning. I don't know that I can identify <laughs> any particular nail, but probably the most dramatic moment for me was when uh, a woman named Cassidy Hutchinson, who was the uh, the chief of staff to the president's chief of staff to Mark Meadows, when she testified under oath on national television that she knew basically firsthand that Donald Trump was happy to learn that the mob he had assembled at the Capitol was armed and dangerous. When he said, let's turn off the magnetic devices that can keep the weapons away from the site of government, I'm happy to have them with all of these weapons, some of which were weapons of basically mass destruction, the kinds of weapons that that kill dozens of children in various attacks. And he said, I, I, it doesn't bother me that they have those weapons because they are not going to turn the weapons on me. And he basically then aimed the armed mob at the Capitol, told the mob that the vice president, whom he had not succeeded in basically pressuring into playing the illegal role of, of basically handing him the election, told the mob that the vice president was a coward, made sure that the mob was angry enough to go after him. And then we saw on television that they put up a gallows, you know, to, to go after the vice president of the United States. And rather than doing anything during the three hours when the mob was engaged in basically medieval armed combat, not with the guns that they had brought, interestingly enough, but with cruder weapons, with flagpoles and the like, basically crushing various uh, capital police and in the end causing several deaths. While that went on, 
for three hours, the one person in the country who could have called it off, the president of the United States, did nothing to call it off. And on the contrary, riled up the mob by telling them that the vice president was a coward. And everybody pleaded with him, including uh, his own cabinet members, his own family, to please do something to stop the violence. And he said no. That was the moment. It made it clear to me that he was aiding and abetting a violent armed insurrection against uh, the government of the United States and the transition of power to the duly elected new president. So you know the standard of evidence necessary to prosecute. From what from what's been made public, let's start with the hearings and what we've learned through that. Is it enough to bring charges against the president? And if so, what charges might he face? I think there are eyewitnesses and earwitnesses to what he said and what he knew that will suffice to bring charges under several federal criminal statutes. Uh, Some of them are less dramatic than others. One involves what's called defrauding the United States. That is, it's settled in American law that that federal criminal statute applies even if you don't try to cheat the United States out of money, but cheat it instead out of the results of a fair election. That's one of the things that there is strong evidence that this uh, that this uh, then president did. Another is quite straightforwardly corruptly interfering and with and obstructing an official proceeding. The official meeting of Congress, of a joint session of Congress, on January 6th, every four years, is an important event. It's the transition of power uh, to the new administration. If a president is reelected, it's a pretty simple transition. He retains power. If he's voted out of office, or someday she is voted out of office, uh, then it's a transition. But he is, I think, demonstrably guilty, and the evidence, of course, needs to be presented in court and subject to cross-examination. But I think he's demonstrably guilty of obstructing an official proceeding. Third, there is very strong evidence that he's guilty of seditious conspiracy, that is, of agreeing with others, in this case with people like Roger Stone and Steve Bannon and, and others, and the head through them, the heads of these militia groups, the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers, to overturn the government of the United States. That's seditious conspiracy. It's punishable by 20 years in prison. Finally, there is aiding and abetting a violent insurrection. This was, by any measure, a violent insurrection. He aided it, he abetted it, he incited it, he fomented it. He's like the arsonist who sets fire to something and then watches it burn instead of taking the hose that he alone has and putting out the fire. That's a particularly important federal crime, because if you're convicted of that, then under the relevant statute, you are ineligible ever again to hold any office, state or federal, in the United States. Needless to say, that includes, again, being president. Those are the main offenses that I think could be charged, and it really looks like the Department of Justice is gearing up to bring those charges. What's the evidence of that, Larry? How how do you read the runes on that? Is is there enough? Are there enough leaks? I know the uh, Washington Post has had a number of leaks from the DOJ this week, uh, and Merrick Garland has been giving interviews. He's a former student of yours. Are you able to give us any insight into what he's thinking might be currently? 
Well, I certainly can't read his mind. He was a terrific student. He played things close to the vest, even as a student, something like 50 years ago. And I've had some conversations with him, but he's very tight-lipped. He's certainly not going to tell me what he's thinking. But when he told Lester Holt... This is the anchor of NBC. The anchor of NBC National News. When he told Lester Holt that I think it's extremely important, he said, that anyone who is guilty of trying to overturn a democratic election and thereby threatening American democracy and the rule of law be held fully accountable. And it doesn't matter how high an office that person holds. And when pressed by Holt saying, well, is it relevant, uh, you know, that it might be a disruptive thing in the United States, given how many strong supporters Trump has, indeed rabid supporters, that there might be violence, that there might be, uh, you know, anything but tranquility. Is that relevant? And Garland looked him straight in the face and said, nothing to me is relevant other than whether the evidence shows that someone is probably guilty of a crime. Those weren't his exact words, but that was the gist of it. The, The key question there is, is there a judgment call to be made? That is, if the evidence strongly shows, and I think it's pretty blatantly obvious that it does show that Donald Trump was trying to overturn the election. Let's let's cut to the chase. That's what the evidence shows. A lot of it we saw in plain view. We also saw in plain view when we heard him trying to twist the arm of the Secretary of State of Georgia in order to steal the 16 electoral votes of that state. So the evidence is there, but the question then becomes, does the Attorney General have to weigh the imponderables of how serious a disruption in the life of the United States would it be for the first time in American history for a former president to be charged with a federal crime? Is that something that he ought to weigh? And the people who used to argue, oh, that's an imponderable, uh, Merrick Garland has got to weigh that, he's probably not the kind of person who would go ahead and, and prosecute. I think they had a rude awakening when he said, quite rightly, that's not the question for me. That's, in effect, he said, that's above my pay grade. I've, I've argued on, uh, on Twitter that, in effect, for the attorney general to allow that kind of consideration to prevent him from prosecuting the former president would be like giving the former president a pardon in the way that Gerald Ford gave Richard Nixon a pardon to end the national nightmare. Well, that might or might not be a good idea, but it's not the job of the attorney general. The pardon power belongs solely to the American president. And it is not up to Merrick Garland, and he seems to recognize that it's not up to him, uh, to decide that by and large it would be better for the country if we simply let bygones be bygones and let someone who was willing to aim an armed mob at the Capitol and endanger the life of the secretary, uh, of the Speaker of the House and of the Vice President and cause what amounted to four or five actual deaths Let's let bygones be bygones. The country will be better off if we just forget it. That, I think, would be a terrible judgment. It would set a terrible precedent. But in any event, and this is the key, Merrick Garland made clear, I think, in his interview with Lester Holt, that he doesn't see that as his job. 
There is every chance that Donald Trump will announce in the next months that he's going to run again in 2024 for the presidency. Presumably that's also a real problem for the Department of Justice and Merrick Garland, because then he's not just a former president, which, as you say, raises all kinds of questions, but then Donald Trump would be an active presidential candidate and could claim that any investigations into his conduct are you know, potential interventions in the political process by, for example, the Department of Justice. Is that something, is, is Merrick Garland in a way on the clock to try to get this dealt with before we're into kind of the, effectively the, the campaign for 2024? I think the answer is no. Merrick Garland made clear in response to a question from Lester Holt that it's not of concern to him whether or when Donald Trump decides to become another candidate for the presidency again. Keep in mind what it would do if the rule or the practice was the moment someone who has almost successfully pulled off a coup and overturned the US government, the moment that person says, I'm in the game again, that person becomes immune sort of like, you know, I I don't like comparisons with Hitler, and I'm not comparing Trump to Hitler. Um, But when Hitler failed uh, in his first attempt to have an effective pooch, and then was imprisoned, it was the second time that he succeeded. We don't want a situation in which someone who almost successfully overthrows the government can simply by saying, now I am a candidate again, and so I'm immune, That can't be a cloak of immunity. We already have a strange rule, one that I think is a mistake, that you cannot prosecute a sitting president for a crime. I think that's wrong. But it would be doubly wrong, doubly wrong to say that when a sitting president is voted out of office, refuses to take the people's defeat, take that uh, as decisive, tries to cling to power, fails, and then just before a criminal prosecution moves to the stage of an indictment, he simply waves a magic wand and says, you can't catch me. That can't be the rule. And I think my former student, now the attorney general, is smart enough to know that that can't be the rule. All eyes on the DOJ. Hey, Larry. Listen, thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate your insights. You're welcome, Kylie. Thank you for having me. That's Lawrence Tribe, Professor of Constitutional Law at Harvard. Up next, the Philippines has a newly elected leader. But is Ferdinand Marcos Jr. any different to Rodrigo Duterte when it comes to press freedom and the silencing of critics? Nobel Peace Prize winner and Filipino journalist Maria Ressa, founder of the online news service Rappler, joins me in a moment. A Nobel Prize winner, her news website and the courts. It's a grand battle that grinds on in the Philippines without a winner. Rappler founder Maria Ressa calls it asymmetric warfare. Rodrigo Duterte may no longer be president, 
but the muscle memory of his attacks on the media apparently persists. Maria Ressa, thanks for speaking to Between the Lines. Thanks for having me. Now, I know there are multiple cases targeting not only you personally, but also the digital media outlet that you founded, Rappler. But last month, Rappler was ordered to shut down. So can you bring us up to speed on where things are at right now in terms of these legal challenges? Uh, you know that in beginning in 2019, in less than two years, I received uh, 10 arrest warrants and I am out on bail on those of those 10 arrest warrants. Seven cases are still alive. Eight for Rappler, if you include the the decision you just mentioned, which is with the Securities and Exchange Commission, it is a minor regulatory body that has um, that has given us what is effectively a shutdown order. Well, that doesn't quite work like that. It, the court would be the one to do that. So we have taken it up to the Court of Appeals, and that's where that case stands. But that formed the mother case of, you know, at some point there were 14 investigations and cases against Rappler. They have uh, over the last six years slimmed down. Um, But, you know, I called it uh, death by a thousand cuts. It's a war of attrition, but we're still here and we're, we're continuing to do our jobs. Maria, so the Philippines, of course, has elected a new president, Ferdinand Jr., Bong Bong Marcos. How much do you interpret this kind of campaign on yourself and on press freedom as something that he now holds, you know, overall responsibility for? It's happening on his watch. Or how much of it is realistically a hangover from the previous government? a little bit of both. I mean, if you look at just the technicality of when the decisions came out, the SEC's shutdown order released two days before the end of the Duterte administration. And then the cyber libel case, which is uh, denying our appeal at the Court of Appeals, was on July 7th, well into President Marcos's uh, term in office. Um, Having said that, you know, he just, President Marcos just gave his State of the Nation address, his first um, yesterday. And uh, while it was um, and I use the word good because it addressed certain problems that needed to be addressed, the economy first and foremost. Uh, it was also notable for its omissions. And among them are um, accountability, uh, you know, in terms of justice, human rights and press freedom. Are you disappointed by that, that it would seem even under a new administration, this inclination to curtail and punish the free press actually persists? I mean, we're certainly living through this on social media. There are information operations that escalated after President Marcos won. Of course, the government has plausible deniability, but when you map the networks of disinformation, um, you can see the direct connection to the Marcos and Duterte accounts. Um, In fact, under the Duterte administration, uh, the office that handled communications um, actually got more money to pay more people than it had employees, than it had existing employees, right? So um, look, what was clear is there was an escalation at the end of the Duterte administration against independent media, because it wasn't just Rappler. You also had, for the very first time, uh, the blocking of progressive news websites. That's never happened in the Philippines before. What the government used to block are porn sites, not news sites. So that's a first. Um, and you know, one at least one of them have tried to go to court for a temporary restraining order and been denied. So um, 
that was followed by our shutdown order, which then was followed by my by, by the denial of the cyber libel case. I mean, cyber libel is interesting because it's essentially a retroactive application of the law when we publish I, I the was story. Going to, I was going to ask you about that. So as I understand it, and correct me if I'm wrong, so the cyber libel law came in well after the article that the government found offensive, but then they decided that this law could be retroactively applied and they could go back into the past and call up that article and prosecute you after the fact about its over its publication. Is that right? That's correct. So it did that because in 2014, which is, so the article was published in 2012. In 2014, someone in Rappler changed a miss one word, one letter in one word. Uh, the word is evasion and uh, uh, one letter was corrected. And that was deemed a republication of the article that had no changes in it, right? Um, and then I think the other thing that's important in the cyber libel cases, in order to find my former colleague and I guilty, they actually extended the period of prescription for libel, which is one year, according to our laws, um, in order to find us guilty in the court, in the trial, regional trial courts, they extended it to 12 years. And then most recently at the Court of Appeals, that was extended again to 15 years. None of these things should be possible, but they are. Let's talk about the the time of President Duterte's reign in the Philippines. I mean, of course, you were a very visible critic of his, but why was Rappler, why, why was this website such a threat to him? Why was so much energy used to try and repress and shut you down? I think because we didn't voluntarily give up our rights. You know, when the government moves against news organizations, people talk about a chilling effect. Well, in the Philippines, it was Siberia. And the difference between large corporate news organizations and Rappler, we were the third attacked by the president. It was first the largest newspaper and then the largest broadcaster. And then Rappler in 2017 um, we have no other businesses. Um, we're journalists. We have a shareholders agreement that gives economic control of our business to the journalists. So we didn't voluntarily give up our rights. And I think that, you know, in many ways, what the Duterte administration did was to, to create cautionary examples, you know, so in business, it was a gentleman named Roberto Ongpin, whom the president attacked very early in his term of office. And when that happened, he dropped 46% of the value of his publicly listed company. Uh, the second, the politician, is Senator Lila de Lima, who spent most of her entire term in office in jail. She's been in jail for her six for six years now, the six years of the Duterte administration. And she remains in jail, even though her uh, the people who served as witnesses against her, who were prison inmates, recanted their tale. So this is a, something we can, need to continually watch. And then finally, there's us, there's Rappler. Um, I think it was like one of those things that if we can get Maria Ressa to shut up, <laughs> it'll be okay. I don't know. I don't have an answer for you, except that, you know, it really gave me firsthand experience of how my rights were violated, how freedom of the press, which is enshrined in the Bill of Rights of the Constitution, was literally being its death of a thousand cuts, which leads directly to the weakening of our democracy. 
Maria, how demoralising is it for your staff to have these kinds of legal threats and this uh, layers of intimidation hanging over the publication they work for? I mean, is it, it, it must be frightening at times. You know, you would think that would be the case, but in many ways, what has happened in the last six years is that we've attracted uh, journalists with courage who come in knowing that we are fighting for our rights. And, uh, you know, uh, I've managed news organizations when they're not under threat. So ABS-CBN, before it lost its franchise, uh, is about a thousand news, uh, a thousand journalists under that. I managed that for six years. And in Rappler, what happened was all of the normal everyday friction of running a news organization fell away. You know, the, the mission became more important. And if, you know, we knew we couldn't stop working and that drive, that mission, we understood that these times, this time matters. So um, while you would think it would be bad for morale, it's actually been good. We're ready. And what we do to stay ready is to try to anticipate worst case scenarios and prepare and drill our organization for it. Ferdinand Marcos Jr., who won the recent election, Was this part of his election campaign? Did he talk about, make any promises or pledges about press freedom? Did voters support his stance against critics? Unfortunately not. I would say there were very, there was very little uh, substance in the campaign platforms of of then candidate Marcos, right? Uh, what I can tell you in it is in his first campaign rally, in a 20-minute speech, he mentioned the word unity 21 times. You know, it was a lot of... Uh, of a lot of motherhood statements with very little concrete. And what he did do is give us an idea of how he would manage, uh, which is by um, being surrounded by and traveling with his own cadre of bloggers and vloggers who essentially are propagandists at his beck and call. Um, He did not attend most of the major debates, refused to answer hard-hitting questions. And this is, you know, as a Marcos, he definitely does have lessons of history and questions about his family's uh, dealings that he needed to answer. He refused, but he still won by an incredibly large margin. And I would say in terms of press freedom now, it's still, this is me being optimistic, TBD. Despite that last push under the Duterte administration, I wait and see what President Marcos will really do. You know, will he run after uh, journalists trying to do their jobs or will he do what he needs to do, which is frankly to run a government? Maria, do we know as yet whether or not he is likely to be more influenced by international interest and pressure. I mean, we know that President Duterte, in a way, wore that as a badge of honour when he was being, you know, politely requested to do one thing or another by a foreign government or a foreign entity like the UN. He would publicly shun that and see that as a a matter of pride, nationalistic pride indeed. So what what about Bongbong Marcos? Is he cut from the same cloth in that regard? 
Absolutely not. And that is a plus, right? In many instances, you you asked about his policies, unlike President Duterte, who threatened and who who went on rampages, you know, in while while speaking as president. This president is uh, um, he makes sense. He follows. Uh, he rarely goes off script. It seems. Um, it looks like he is trying to do a good job. Um, and he does care about international opinion. In fact, in the State of the Nation address yesterday, he talked about uh, trying to find this, you know, maintaining sovereignty of the Philippines and uh, and finding this ground where uh, foreign policy is is uh, the Philippines is a friend to all. Having said that. He also said that he was considering attending the United Nations General Assembly. Um, the Marcoses have, if you remember, almost 21 years uh, of experience in power. Uh, Bongbong Marcos, Marcos Jr., is a former governor. He's a senator. Uh, his sister, Irene Aimee Marcos, is now a sitting senator. Um, and so this is a family that has, I mean, you could see it in the way he ran his campaign. It has the grandiosity and kind of the overarching themes of his father. Uh, in fact, those were, he even looked and dressed like his father during the campaign. This Marcos that we see today, again, TBD, right? I choose to be optimistic. Um, the history is there, but I think the most stunning thing for me is really how social media, how information operations have changed history so quickly in front of our eyes. It's it's really Milan Kundera's quote, you know, the struggle of man against power is the struggle of memory against forgetting. Well, we forget very quickly nowadays and not just forget, you can suppress what you don't like if you're some, someone in power today and then replace it with a meta-narrative you want. This is how we're electing illiberal leaders all around the world. So, the, so you send your vloggers um, site out or you recommend that you follow someone, you follow a vlogger who's favourable to you rather than, for example, heading over to the Rappler website to find out what's truly going on. In fact, that's exactly what the Marcos campaign was like. If in many instances, what they did was to create, quote, influencers. I really dislike that word when pushed to journalists because, you know, this is the problem with the incentive structure of the internet and social media today. It is a popularity contest and journalists are not doing our jobs to be popular. So you shared the Nobel Prize with a Russian journalist do you ever chat amongst yourselves about, you know, the parallels between your governments, the governments you've been dealing with? You know, I'm thinking not only of Duterte, but also of, of the new uh, Marcos but and Vladimir Putin. I mean, there is a track record, sadly, for both of those leaderships when it comes to press freedom. Like kleptocracy, also, you know. Well, look, I saw Dim um, I saw Dimitri in Geneva last April, and at that point, you know, four months after we received the Nobel in December, uh, Russia invaded Ukraine, and then within a short while, um, Novaya Gazeta, the news organization that Dimitri heads, um, was forced to stop publishing in Russia because if they used the word war, he would go to jail for 15 years. Um, the Philippines is not Russia. 
And I hope we don't become Russia. But I think this uh, there's definitely a dictator's playbook that is encouraging the rise along, you know, enabled by these tech platforms of these types of illiberal leaders um, destroying democracy. Maria, there was a time in the not so distant past when the Philippines, I, I covered Southeast Asia for many years and, and you would go to the Philippines and it would be this fantastically freewheeling, lively, you know, a press conference there was a pile on in, of all kinds yeah. of, you know, enthusiastic questioning and there was a kind of banter, a healthy democratic banter even you could say in those press conferences. Are you shocked by how quickly it would feel as though the character or the ability of the press to play that role has been crueled? Absolutely. It is, um, you know, you watch Stranger Things, you know, that series on Netflix, we're in uh -huh. the upside down. We're in the upside down. It's it's vaguely familiar, but it is overgrown and dark and you need to somehow find your way into the right side up. Um, I haven't given up. You know, I think that in the end, as you have seen in uh, in the Ukraine, well, Ukraine is a bad example because they're at war. But, you know, I was speaking to some Ukrainian journalists who said that, you know, I asked them, where do they get hope? Where do you get hope? And it was like, well, in Ukraine, news is survival. Right. You need to know where to get water, where the bomb is going to fall, where the nearest shelter is, where you're going to get gasoline. And and they get hope from the people. Ultimately, all of these information warfare online that is essentially acting like a behavior modification system is going to have to move to the real world. I think the question really is whether news organizations and journalists, human rights activists, those first attacked when you want to replace facts with lies, um, whether we can survive this time period. Maria, thank you so much for finding the time in your upside down world to uh, to talk to us and talk us through the kinds of uh, threats and, you know, challenges, to put it mildly, uh, you yourself and Rappler is facing. It would be great to um, speak to you again when there are some further resolutions. But meanwhile, take care. Thank you. That's Nobel Prize winner and Rappler founder Maria Ressa. next. While the likelihood of bringing those who commit war crimes to justice is remote, that shouldn't mean that it's not worth pursuing. Amnesty International's Donatella Rivera explains how war crimes are investigated and what it takes to hold the perpetrators accountable. Donatella Rivera is a senior investigator for Amnesty International and has just returned from Ukraine. Let's start there, Donatella. Can you give us a sense of the process involved, what you're doing day to day to document possible violations of human rights and international law? 
Most of the work that I've been doing uh, over the past few months in Ukraine, in, in different parts of the country, has been to investigate bombardment by Russian forces, indiscriminate attacks in populated civilian areas which have killed and injured civilians, um, other types of bombardments with forbidden uh, weapons such as cluster bombs, that has been, in a way, what I've worked on most because that has been very widespread patterns of indiscriminate and disproportionate uh, shellings and uh, bombardments, mostly ground launched, but some also air launched or sea launched um, all over the country, north, east, south. I've also spent time investigating extrajudicial executions. That was mostly in the areas north of the capital earlier on in the conflict. Um, and I've also spent time looking into allegations of uh, sexual abuse and rape. The, those are the potential war crimes that I've been investigating. And what level of evidence are you looking for, Donatella? When you arrive, let's imagine, in a village where there have been reports of, of rape, um, are you seeking first-hand testimony? Are you looking for eyewitnesses? Are you doing also a kind of a material evidence search? Well, it, it very much depends on what is the crime that does allegedly been committed. I mean, for certain crimes, notably sexual violence, there are no witnesses. It's the survivors themselves. And there is generally no material evidence either. So that's mostly really um, uh, testimonies. Uh, that, that's the particularity of, uh, of, of, of that, those kinds of investigation. I mean, then there is obviously you know, trying to confirm whether, you know, certain units were in a given area. I mean, I mean, you know, the, the whole issue of investigating sexual violence in this particular conflict is, is, a very, is a very important and interesting one because there have been allegations from very early on in the conflict which have simply not been borne out by what we at Amnesty International and our colleagues at Human Rights Watch and others have been able to confirm. So, you know, there, there were clearly politicians that were making sweeping allegations, which then caused a lot of behavior by certain by certain journalists, which were which were, you know, far from far from ethical, um, uh, because, again, in you know, when investigating particularly sensitive uh, violations such as sexual violence, it's very important that survivors are not put under pressure um, because, you know, these are abuses that carry social stigma. Um, you know, there are many, many different reasons why certain types of abuses are more difficult to document and are more difficult for the survivors to talk about. And sexual abuse is one of those. Um, and, and the manner in which this has been dealt with in this conflict by some of the Ukrainian politicians 
and and some media as 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 being unethical and uh, and not very helpful at all um because it created terrible pressure um so in 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 the event as of today the scale that was uh, alleged to have been uh, at the beginning uh, we've not found evidence to that so we found three individual cases and it's the same for our colleagues at human rights watch so we have not found evidence to substantiate allegations of patterns um of you know of widespread patterns Donatella, sorry, you've used that word pattern a number of times. Is that the key for you, in a way, to be able to not look at individual events independently of one another, but see that this is a structure of behaviour, if you like, that this then may well have been something that was ordered from higher up? Well, obviously, patterns are made up of individual cases. So there is no getting away from the fact that we need to look at each individual case uh, and and then, you know, pattern may or may not emerge. Obviously, when we when we do see evidence of patterns, which has certainly been the case with um, shelling and bombardments of civilians, uh, because that has been a very widespread pattern all over the country, north, east, south, uh, all over, um, and, and throughout the time, you know, from the beginning and it continues now. Uh, obviously, that has different implications. It doesn't always mean that it's, or certainly it's very difficult for us to prove that there are you know, orders at a certain level, but it's certainly what, you know, what we've seen as of today, um, it, it, it certainly shows that the forces that are carrying out, the Russian forces that are carrying out those indiscriminate attacks, you know, clearly feel that they can do so with total impunity. It also indicates that there is, that this is a, this is a structural issue because it's been happening consistently all over the all over the country and uh, throughout since the beginning of the conflict. So it's not some units; it, it's all the Russian forces that have been uh, engaging in um, in those practices. Whereas with Another types of abuses, such as extrajudicial execution, something that I investigated in the area north of the capital. Uh, there again, um, it, it, you know, very different. Um, that was a that was a widespread practice. North in the areas north of the capital, earlier on in the conflict but we've not found the same pattern in the east or south of the country. Different types of, of abuses require different methods of investigation. So, for example, when investigating bombardment and shelling, site visits are very, very important, um, trying to understand what weapons were used by going through 
the rubble of the of the destroyed uh, and the damaged building, as well as looking at the at the impact and you know what it looks like because that also helps us to understand what kind of munitions were used, as well as, of course, the testimonies, as well as any audiovisual material that, you know, residents may have captured, some people uh, captured some, uh, some, some, you know, interesting uh, moments on, on video, for example. So all of that is very, very important. Given, given the level of evidence that, that you're seeing and the, and the testimony that you're hearing, do you have any confidence, I guess, based on your experience, that anyone who wields power, civilian leaders, commanders in Moscow, will ultimately be held to account for these crimes? Yes, I think some people will be. How many, how soon is very difficult to is very difficult to know. Like so far, there have been a couple of trials of one individual in one case, a soldier, and two soldiers in another case. These these trials were held in Ukrainian court. Um, there are some questions also about the manner in which those trials were conducted. Um, they were not necessarily perfect. Uh, far from that. Um, what form will other cases take is very early, um, very early to say. Um, it remains to be seen whether most of the cases will be tried in Ukraine or in other countries uh, through universal jurisdiction or by the International Criminal Court. But as we know from other conflicts, this is a long journey. It takes not months, but years very often. And it is always invariably a small percentage of those responsible who are held accountable. When it comes to people lower down the chain of command, ultimately today, what is possible is for those who are captured or for those who may go to some other country. It is quite clear that bringing to justice people at the top of the chain of command generally only ever happens when there are political changes and those people lose the power that they have in the absence of those changes bringing to justice those who are at the top of the chain of command doesn't doesn't often happen, or if at all. Donatella, I have to ask, you mentioned the International Criminal Court in The Hague. Did, does Russia, in fact, recognise it and its authority to deal with things like war crimes? No, but it doesn't, it doesn't have to recognise it. The International Criminal Court... Uh, the chief prosecutor is investigating cases in uh, in the Ukrainian conflict. So the fact that Russia does not accept jurisdiction doesn't doesn't really matter. The war crimes, you know, being committed uh, on Ukrainian soil, the court can deal with them. 
The US Secretary of State has said this month that Russia has forcibly relocated between 900,000 and 1.6 million Ukrainians into Russia and that, in fact, potentially 260,000 of that number are children. Can we talk about that for a moment? Is forcible relocation a war crime? It can be. Uh, first of all, evidence needs to be gathered as to the numbers and the circumstances under which people ended up in Russia. Um, again, it's not always clear-cut. Um, large numbers of Ukrainian nationals ended up in Russia. Some of them, potentially many of them, have already left Russia and they are in neighboring countries. And we've spoken to, to some of them uh, who are in, in nearby countries. The question is that when there, are, when there is an armed conflict, people are often not able to flee towards the front line because it's a front line, because it's dangerous. So in other cases, they are not able to flee towards the front line, which in this case would be people fleeing towards where Ukrainian forces are, because that road is closed off by the Russian forces and their only possibility is to flee towards Russia. In other cases, people from vulnerable population groups, including unaccompanied children, older people, were allegedly taken to Russia. Of course, Russia claims that they took people away from the areas of conflict to take them to safety. So again, cases have to be investigated on a case-by-case -case basis. So as of today, we are not in a we're not in a position to say how many people altogether ended up from from Ukraine ended up in Russia and under which circumstances we've we've seen the allegations we are speaking to to people obviously we are we can only really speak to people who have then managed to um, to leave Russia and who are either in neighboring countries or who've gone back to Ukraine, because we are not allowed to work in Russia. Uh, neither we at Amnesty International nor, nor other international human rights organizations. So that part of the work is, is more difficult. I mean, those numbers are very large numbers uh, that we cannot confirm at the moment. We're, there, there is no doubt that people were uh, forcibly taken to Russia. The question is how many, under what circumstances, uh, those who want to leave, how easy or difficult it is for them, and especially for those vulnerable population groups, what is happening for you know with them. Donatella, finally, can I just ask you a personal question? I mean, we were talking earlier about you and I, I think, first met more than 20 years ago in Gaza when I was working as a correspondent and you were doing what you do now. I mean, your job involves incredible personal risk. You talked about the necessity to be there on the scene, if not in real time, at least as soon as possible after something's happened. 
I wonder how you keep on going. You know, what, what makes it worth it for you? Well, that very, very small percentage of cases where even years or sometimes decades later, uh, perpetrators are held to account, victims and survivors get justice. It is a very small percentage of the overall number of cases. If I look back over almost 30 years of doing this work, it's incredibly frustrating. But A, I think that, you know, what keeps me going and it's because I don't think that doing nothing is an alternative. And I think the best thing, the best chance for justice is for the investigations to be carried out as soon as possible, while the evidence is available before the evidence is removed or destroyed. Because if and when the possibility arises to hold the perpetrators to account, if that work hasn't been done in a timely uh, manner, then, then that possibility cannot be realized. Even though the success stories are far too few, I think that there is really no other alternative uh, but to do what we can to make sure that, that we equip ourselves with, with the tool to bring the perpetrators to justice. And that is to, to carry out investigations as soon as possible. Donatella, thanks so much for joining us on Between the Lines. Thank you. That's Donatella Rivera, Senior Investigator for Amnesty International, who just uh, returned from Ukraine. And that's the show. I'm Kylie Morris, sitting in one last time for Tom Switzer, who will be back presenting Between the Lines next week. It's been great being with you for the last few months. Thanks so much for your company. Bye for now. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.